So this last week, um, I did a Google search on how to live a better life. And it's not because I usually go to Google for life advice. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. It was for research purposes only. But I go on to Google, I type in how to have a better life, and I got a lot of different results. The first blog that came up right away, it recommended different steps, such as choosing authenticity over conformity, getting clear on your vision and your goals, making yourself accountable, blessing what you already have, and freeing yourself from the past. Wisdom literature abounds in our culture, in books, in blogs, video clips, TV shows, whatever you want. Wisdom literature, what what I mean by that, it's it's like the operating manual for life. It, It figures out how the system all works and then tells you how to live within that system at peak efficiency for your benefit. So this is how health works. So this is how you're going to get a healthy body. This is how office life works. So here's your steps to getting that promotion that you've always wanted. This is how college works or high school works. This is how marriage works. This is how parenting works. This is how life works. This is how the world works. And when you figure out how the world works, you can work within that system. If we figure out the pattern, then we can draw within the lines of life. It's, it's kind of like a map. When you, when you look at the map, you can see where you are, and you can see how to get to where you want to be. And that's just classic wisdom literature. And Ecclesiastes is in a section of, of Scripture that's called wisdom literature. But Koheleth here, Koheleth is the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to teach us something surprising about this kind of wisdom. So look with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It's page 557 in your pew Bibles. Uh, as we look to the word of the Lord. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, And who may may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. 
For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, just pray that this evening you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things in your law. Teach us wisdom from your word, that we would learn to trust in you in this perplexing and this frustrating world. Be working in our hearts and in our minds, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that we would be attentive to what you have to say to us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. If you've been here at Livingstone uh, for most of the summer, then you're probably getting pretty familiar with the terminology and the concepts that Koheleth, this teacher in Ecclesiastes, is using. Josh already mentioned one, life under the sun, life in this under-the-sun world, excluding this over-the-sun reality, life in this fallen and perplexing world. And the term hevel, which in this translation, the ESV is translated as vanity, but it means vapor or breath. It refers to this perplexing and frustrating nature in the world as we try to find meaning, satisfaction, or order. One idea that for me has been really helpful in understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is to look at it like a commentary on the book of Genesis, particularly on Genesis 3, verses 16 through 19. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. Um, In Genesis 3, mankind falls from their perfect relationship with God the perfect relationship with his world and with each other because they reject God's rule. They rebel against him. Genesis 3, it's the fall of humanity. It's called the fall, the fall of humanity. And when humanity falls, the world falls with us. All of a sudden, that perfectly ordered world, it's subjected to futility and to frustration. And in Genesis 3, 16 through 19, God declares curses upon Adam and Eve for their rebellion. And these curses result in futility and frustration in work, and futility and frustration in relationships. Ecclesiastes, the book that we're looking at this summer, it gives us a painfully realistic look at what life looks like in that fallen world, what life looks like under the sun. And in chapter 8, where we're looking this afternoon, Koheleth comes to us in our wisdom literature world that's full of books and full of blogs to tell us that even when those are at their best, They just don't cut it. They don't always work for us. We try so hard to control our lives and and our futures to find meaning, to find satisfaction and security, but we find that more often than not, our lives are out of control. We feel the effects of that fall in Genesis 3 every single day in our lives. Koheleth comes to us in this chapter, and he shows us a different kind of wisdom. He shows us that Since the world functions in this perplexing way, you must trust your wise God. Since the world functions in a perplexing way, you must trust your wise God. And Koheleth is going to show us two specific ways that we try to fix our perplexing world. The first is strategy, and the second is religion. So let's uh, look at verse 2 as we uh, look at how strategy won't fix our perplexing world. So Koheleth, he first takes us to work. In in these verses, he's taking us into a king's 
throne room and he's speaking to the advisor to the king. He's giving advice to the advisor. And verses 2 through 5 sound like pretty standard wisdom literature. Koheleth speaks to the royal advisor. He encourages him to keep the king's command in verse 2. To not run away when things get difficult in verse 3. To not rebel against the king in an evil cause in verse 4. And he even gives some good reasons for his advice. God's oath to the king. The king is God's servant. That the king does what he wants. And that the king's word is supreme. These seem like good reasons. And they are. Verse 5, he tells us that those who follow this advice follow the proper procedures and advisor to the king. They'll know no evil thing. In other words, they'll have no harm come to them in this life. And this is good strategy for an advisor to the king. It's, it's even echoed in Romans 13, if you're familiar with that chapter. Paul encourages Christians to be subject to the governing authorities, right? So it's good to follow the commands of the king. And it sounds like classic wisdom literature. Koheleth has figured out the system and he's telling us the steps to live within that system, particularly for a royal advisor, how to live to get the best result, how to come to no harm within that system. Do these three steps, you'll come to no harm. So far, so good, right? However, if you've been with us so far for the summer, you probably know to stay on your toes when dealing with Koheleth, the teacher. He likes to come in and jab us in the side with painful reality and truth when we think we have it all figured out. And so just as we, we, we like to act that we can control the outcome and we can figure it out, he jabs us in the side with this hard reality in verse 6. He says, for there is a time and a way for everything, like he just said, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. There's a proper timing, there's a proper procedure for everything, not just for advising kings, but through all of it, our trouble and our misery, it lies heavy on us. We can't escape it. We can't just Run away from it. You can strategize all you want for life in this world, doing everything in the proper way, in the wise way, but trouble is still going to go with you. The royal advisor can follow these, these good steps and still have harm come to him. It's life in this frustrating and fallen world. He's, he's hel- helping us, Koheleth, I think, is helping us to wrestle between wisdom and, and reality, between how it, how it should work in this world and how it really works in the fallen world. Koheleth gives us two reasons that our strategies don't work. Look at these quickly. First, we don't even have real control over all of our life. So we don't have real control over all of our life. And in verse 8, he gives us the sobering reminder that we don't even have the power over the most basic part of living a good life. Living. We don't even have power over the day that we're going to die. So as much as we like to think that we can find this elixir that as healthcare gets better, my wife's a nurse, I know healthcare as it it gets better, we think that we can escape this. But we don't even have power to control the day that we die. For all I know, I, I can die today. I could die tomorrow. We don't have control. When I'm coaching college students, I, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship along the side of what I do at uh, the church here. And one of the things that I'm doing when I'm training them in leadership is I teach them how to make SMART goals. Maybe you're familiar with that. Maybe you love it. Maybe you hate it. Either way. Um, there's, it's an acronym that helps you figure out how to make good goals when you're trying to plan for things going into the next year, usually for our university students. And the A in SMART, it stands for attainable. When making a good plan for anything, you actually have to make sure that you have control over the factors. Because if I, if I make a goal that I want to beat an NBA player in a dunk contest, 
I have to realize that that's not a smart goal. I don't actually have the control to do that because I'm five foot ten, and although I can jump a little bit, I can't touch the rim even. So how am I going to beat a professional base, uh, basketball player uh, in a dunk contest? It's a, I need to have an attainable goal, something that I have control over. Maybe uh, you, you set this goal that you want to fund your retirement um, by winning the lottery. You set that as a goal. Is that a smart goal? No, that's not a smart goal. Why? Because you don't actually have control over the, over the lottery. You don't have enough control to win it and to prove that you're going to win it and actually do that. Uh, my mom is a math teacher, and she had a bumper sticker on our car, on our car growing up that said the lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. Because the probability is it's stacked against you. You're not going to win it. It's, it's not going to work out well for you. So if we're going to sm- set good goals, we need to make sure that we have control over the factors, okay? Sometimes, though, we think that we can strategize and that we can plan for and set all these goals and f- for our life and to fix our world and to live in it. But we, we do that falsely believing that we actually have enough control to do that. We actually have enough control over our own, our own life. And I, I do believe that our decisions matter, that God uses the things that we do. But we humbly need to remember how powerless we actually are and how weak we are sometimes. And I think it's an easy thing to remember when I, when I remember that fact about my death, that I don't know the day. I don't, I don't have control over those things. And when we remember that weakness, it should cause us to look to God, to look above the sun, to see a God that is in control, that's smarter than we are, wiser than we are, that's more powerful than we are. And we can turn to him and we can trust him in the midst of this unpredictable world. So first, we don't have real control over all of our life. The second uh, reason that our strategies don't work is that we really don't know as much as we think we know. In verse 7 he says, For he, referring to mankind, does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? If we're honest, again, we don't even know what tomorrow will really hold at all. We can plan for it, and that's okay, but we really don't know what tomorrow will hold. All the way at the end of this passage in verse 17, he says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We don't know what tomorrow holds, and we don't really even understand how everything works in our world. We don't actually have this big picture of the system that we can map it out, that we can figure it out. And this is a huge contrast here between verse 1, where Koheleth commends wisdom. He says it's this rare thing. But in the last verse, he tells us that not even the wise really understand the ways of God and the way the world works. We really don't have that much control, and we don't even really know that much. We can try as hard as we can to follow wisdom, to strategize and to structure our life, and it still won't always work for us. And that's simply the way it is, and we all experience that, right? We live in this world, and we recognize that all of our planning doesn't always work. Now, I think that, again, strategy and planning is a good thing. Uh, I really believe that I would not be living nearly as okay of a life as I am right now if I didn't marry Lexi when I did. I don't plan. I don't often look at our finances. I don't know how much money is in the bank at most times. I I don't know what's coming up in the weeks ahead, but Lexi's a planner. She's the one who looks through our finances, makes sure we're going to live, which is helpful. That's really good, especially early in marriage when we weren't making a lot of money and and things were really tight. Um, And she's the one that knows our calendar. She makes sure that things are in our phone as we have this synced calendar. It's great. It's so helpful for me, right? And we should always desire to live according to wisdom. We should live wise lives. We should, we should plan in a wise way. 
But for just a moment, I want you to imagine a man named Jerry. Jerry is a nice guy. He's been working for the same manufacturing company as an accountant for 20 years. He's always come to work on time. He's kept a positive attitude. He's met his deadlines. He's avoided office gossip. He uh, works well alongside his boss and his coworkers. He's done everything that he should do in his job. He's a good worker. Multiple times he's been recognized for the quality of his work. But after 20 years, a new boss comes in to his company and restructures the way things work. And Jerry's job becomes redundant. And Jerry is let go. Now, does that seem like a fair way for the world to function? No, it doesn't. He's put in his hard work. He's done what he should do. He's followed all the steps. But is that reality? Does that happen? Yes, that happens. And that's frustrating. We've all experienced that frustration to some extent in our lives, some more than others, and it's not always in relation to our work. Sometimes it's in relation to other things. You're told that if you do everything right at work, you'll get that promotion, but instead that younger person gets the job that you wanted, the person with less experience. You're told that if you study and don't sleep in class, like I did in college, it's a bad example, don't do that, don't sleep in class if you're in college or in high school. Um, But you're told that if you do those things that you'll get an A, but then your grades don't work out the way that you hoped they would. You follow your doctor's advice, but still you find yourself in a losing battle with that health problem. You dated wisely, you did premarital counseling, you met as a couple with your pastor, yet marriage doesn't go the way that you hoped it would. You took your children to church, you did family devotions, you disciplined your children well, yet your child still walks away from the faith. Life under the sun in this fallen world is painful. It's frustrating. It's perplexing. It's confusing. How can we figure this out? All of our our strategy and all of our planning can't fix it. It just can't, and we all know that to be true. Now again, that doesn't mean that we should abandon wisdom. We should just push it off. Again, God works through our obedience, and you need to remember, uh, though, that it's not your perfect strategy that is going to bring about the result that you desire. Um, God really is the only one that provides in your work. He's the only one that provides in your education. He's the one that sustains marriages. Even just this last week, it was my third anniversary with Lexi, and we had a moment um, talking where we both recognized how weak we really were. It came to this, rec- this idea that, you know, we always say that, you know, marriage needs to be sustained by God's grace, that it's only by God's grace that this is going to work out. But we really had this realization that if, if this works out to 40 years, if we're married 40 years from now, it's completely because God did an incredible work in me and in her and both of us. I completely believe that. God is the one who can provide in marriage. He's the one that provides for your children and in your parenting. But even still, God doesn't always come in and fix our problems right now. That's a great mystery. But when you remember that powerless, powerlessness again, your inability to fix your perplexing world, you can trust in a God who again is wiser and more powerful and bigger than your world. So, if wise strategy isn't going to solve my problems in this life, well maybe, just maybe, maybe I, can, maybe I can turn to religion. Maybe I can turn to Christianity. Maybe if I become a Christian, then all my problems will go away. Right? That'll make it better. Well, Koheleth is here to tell you that religion won't fix your perplexing world either. At least it won't fix it now. Look with me to verses 9 through 10. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. 
when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So why doesn't religion fix your problems? At least not fix your problems right away. We'll look at that in a little bit. The first answer is because it seems that the wicked do pretty well without it. Right? It seems like they're doing just fine without God. In verse 9, Koheleth tells us that he's learning and observing all of these things about the world in a time when man had power over man to his hurt. The people that were in charge were corrupt, they were wicked, and they used their power in such a way that they abused and hurt those who were beneath them. These are pretty despicable men. These aren't the good guys, right? And when you move from verse 9, learning about these wicked men, to verse 10, you initially think, or you can think, that this is a victory for the good guys, right? Then I saw the wicked buried. Great. Not that we rejoice in death, but we can rejoice in this. It's victory, right? The, the bad guys, they got what was coming to them, right? They, they were defeated. But that's not what this is talking about. When it says that they were buried, it's referring to a burial that's an on, an, a burial in honor. It's talking about them being buried as heroes, that these wicked people being celebrated Even in the town where they were corrupt, even in the town where they oppressed people, they were celebrated. These men, uh, these rulers were honored. And that's not right, right? That's not the way it should be. If you follow world history, uh, not just world history, world news, uh, maybe you remember a couple years ago that there was a controversy uh, in the Philippines surrounding the burial of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos. Maybe the name rings a bell. Maybe it doesn't. If not, that's okay. Ferdinand had ruled the Philippines uh, from the mid-60s into the mid-80s. He was known for his corruption, for his brutality as a dictator. Thousands of people were imprisoned and were tortured under his rule. This guy's just all around not necessarily the best guy, right? In 1986, he was ousted from his rule in the Philippines, and he moved to Hawaii, where he spent the last three years of his life in Hawaii when he died in 1989, which if any of you want to know, is four years before I was born. So that might date me a little bit. Um, but yeah, he passed away in 1989. But in 2016, his body was moved to a hero's cemetery where he was buried with a 21-gun salute. Does this sound right? He was moved to a cemetery in the Philippines, in this land where he had been a corrupt dictator, and he was buried with a 21-gun salute in a hero's cemetery. It's not quite like what was going on here with Koheleth. Many people pro- protested his burial there. But even still, we see the wicked buried. And we know, we know in our hearts that that's, that just seems wrong. It seems wrong. That's not the way that it should be. Koheleth is telling us that the wicked rulers get buried in honor. And he's also telling us that it seems like the wicked get away with what they're doing because the punishment isn't coming to them. In verse 11, he says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. This is a problem with the earthly rules in one level, that the earthly rulers, they aren't prosecuting the wicked. They're not doing the job that they should do as the rulers. And so the people think, hey, you know, I'm not getting... I'm not getting any punishment for this, so why don't I just keep doing what I'm doing, right? But it also seems to be a problem with the way God is ruling the world. There are plenty of people that can look at this world under the sun and, says, and say, it looks like God's not going to punish me. And if he is, it's a long way off. So I might as well just live how I want to live right now. 
Now, of course, this, this is a foolish idea. This isn't the way that you should live. And if this is the way that you're living, I, I want you to know that even though the pun- punishment, the penalty isn't coming right now, that it is coming. I need to warn you of that. But when we look at that as Christians, we look at, at that happening and we say, why, why does it seem like the wicked get to live the way that they want right now? Why do they get to have all the fun. We can foolishly think that Christianity is just this boring thing that we need to follow these rules and the other people out there get to do what they want because they believe that God's punishment isn't coming. So we see that it doesn't, it doesn't work out for us um, when, we look at, when we look at the world um, because we see that the wicked don't always seem to get what they deserve and that the wicked seem to be getting along just fine uh, without God. The, sub, uh, the, idea, the second idea here, so first, religion won't fix your problems because the wicked seem to get along just fine without it. But the second reason here is that the righteous seem to have a hard life even though they're righteous. This is confusing. Verse 14, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. This is an enigma. This is perplexing. One of the most challenging questions that we can ever get asked is, why do bad things happen to good people? Or the flip side question of that is, why do, good things, uh, why do good things happen to bad people? And both of those questions are extremely challenging, and they're acknowledged here by Koheleth in this passage. These are a vanity. These are an enigma. And maybe you feel like this is you. You try to do good, but it always seems like those who aren't following the right path get what you want. Maybe you feel like that kid who gets punched by his brother, and yells because he got punched, but he gets in trouble for making too much noise while his brother gets off free, right? And we're like, that's not fair. That's not the way that the world should work. But keep listening. Koheleth isn't quite done yet. So sandwiched right in between these odd statements about the wicked not getting what they deserve and the righteous getting what the wicked deserve, it seems so backwards, right? He, he sandwiches in the middle... Um, this, this totally different statement, this statement that seems to say the exact opposite from what he's just told us. In verse 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Is Koheleth contradicting himself here? How can both of these things possibly be true? How can it be true that the wicked seem to be living a good life and the righteous are the ones that are persecuted? The righteous are the ones that have it happen according to the wicked to them. But then he tells us right in the middle of these statements that it will go well with those who fear God. It's going to go well for you. And, if, and, if, and if, for the wicked, it's going to go poorly for you. They're not going to, it's not going to go well. He's not going to prolong his days because he doesn't fear God. We have to ask the question then, when we're looking at these verses, is it true that it will be well with those who fear God and that it will go poorly for the wicked? Is that true? Yes, it is true. Kind of. Yes, it's true. Kind of. Let me me explain. It's true that it will be well with those who fear God and that it will go poorly for the wicked in the end, when Christ returns and judges mankind. If you look at Psalm 73, you don't need to turn there, but I, I recommend reading this on your own. Uh, it deals with the same struggle that Koheleth is introducing to us. It seems that the wicked are living in prosperity. Well, I keep my